page 191, if you're using one of the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at two chapters in the book of Joshua, chapter 16 and chapter 17. I know after last week uh, covering Joshua 15, that might scare you a bit, since one chapter had 63 verses there. Um, but actually this is a smaller, the two chapters here are actually smaller than the single chapter that we looked at last week. Now, as we've been uh, going through the uh, book of Joshua, we've seen in these chapters um, God uh, giving his land to his people. And in these particular chapters that we're going to be looking at today, we have described for us the land which God gave to the descendants of Jacob's son, Joseph. Now, you're probably familiar with the story of Joseph, um, how he stood out from his brothers, both because he was clearly his father's favorite and because at various points in Joseph's life, God actually made him the interpreter of dreams. The book of Genesis goes into extensive detail about Joseph and his life because in order to understand all the events recorded for us in the book of Exodus, uh, how the people of Israel came to be in Egypt in the first place, why they needed to be rescued from Pharaoh, and how God did all of that, you've you got to start with Joseph. Joseph is, a, is, is key to putting the narrative of the Old Testament together. Now, Joseph may have been one of the, uh, he may have been the favorite son among Jacob's sons, uh, but his life could hardly be called a bed of roses. Uh, Joseph really suffered. Joseph was a man who knew real suffering. His life ranks up there with people like Job who lost everything, and not necessarily for anything that they themselves did. We're by no means in, in ten, supposed to think of Joseph as some sort of perfect man. But the majority of Joseph's uh, suffering can be traced really to the evil decisions of other people, whether it was his brothers or Potiphar's wife or the cupbearer who forgot him in prison. The details of Joseph's life are incredibly important for us, not just because of the, their historical significance in the story of redemption, but also because Joseph's life is in many ways a case study in the power of God's grace to overcome our sin. God never abandoned Joseph, not even when he was taken out of his home country. In fact, it becomes uh, clear at the end of the book of Genesis that while others did what they did out of evil intent, God meant for good. It was through Joseph, we see, that God saved not only the people of Israel from famine, but also the Egyptians and, from, and people from all over the world. It was through Joseph that Israel came to live and to grow into a vast nation of people while they sojourned there in the shadow of Egypt, while God graciously endured with great patience the sin of the Canaanites. It was through Joseph that God set the stage to exalt his power and his glory as the deliverer of his people, triumphing over Pharaoh, showing indeed that he is the Lord, he is God, and there is no other. It was through Joseph that God gives us a glimpse of the measure of his power, of the mystery of his ways, turning the tears of his people into gladness and the suffering of his saints into joy. So as we look at the land which was given to Joseph's descendants and the events surrounding that, 
the power of God's grace, we see, is once again put on display. And that's what I want to bring to your attention uh, this morning. Uh, Throughout the service, we have sung about the joyful glory of God's grace. And that's going to be the focus of our, our text this morning and the focus of this sermon. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word as I read from what is recorded for us in the book of Joshua, chapter 16 and 17. This is the word of the Lord. The allotment of the people of Joseph went from the Jordan by Jericho, east of the waters of Jericho, into the wilderness, going up from Jericho into the hill country to Bethel. Then, going from Bethel to Luz, it passes along to Ataroth, the territory of the the Archites. Then it goes down westward to the territory of the Jephthalites, as far as the territory of lower Beth-Horon, then to Gezer, and then it ends at the sea. The people of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim received their inheritance. The territory of the people of Ephraim, by their clans, was as follows. The boundary of their inheritance on the east was Ataroth Adar, as far as Upper Beth Haran, and the boundary goes from there to the sea. On the north is Mikmethath. Then on the east, the boundary turns around toward Ta'anath Shiloh, and passes along beyond it to the east of jo- uh, Jenoa. Man, if I make it through these lists, it's always fun. <laughs> then it goes from Jenoa to Ataroth and to Naara, and touches Jericho, ending at the Jordan. From Tapua, the boundary goes westward to the brook of Cana and ends at the sea. Such is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Ephraim by their clans, together with the towns that were set apart for the people of Ephraim within the inheritance of the Manassites, all those towns with their villages. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, but have been made to do forced labor. Then allotment was made to the people of Manasseh, for he was the firstborn of Joseph. To Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh, the son of Gilead, were allotted Gilead and Bashan because he was a man of war. And allotments were made to the rest of the people of Manasseh by their clans. Abiezer, Helek, Asriel, Shechem, Hefer, and Shemida. These were the male descendants of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, by their clans. Now Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons but only daughters. And these were the names of his daughters. Machla, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They approached Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the leaders and said, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our brothers. So according to the mouth of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions, besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the people of Manasseh. The territory of Manasseh reached from Asher to Mechmethath, which is east of Shechem. Then the boundary goes along southward to the inhabitants of Entapua, The land of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but the town of Tapua on the boundary of Manasseh belonged to the people of Ephraim. Then the boundary went down to the brook of Cana. These cities to the south of the brook among the cities of Manasseh belonged to Ephraim. 
Then the boundary of Manasseh goes on to the north side of the brook and ends at the sea. The land to the south belonged being Ephraim's, and that to the north being Manasseh's, with the sea forming its boundary. On the north, Asher is reached, and on the east, Issachar. Also in Issachar and in Asher, Manasseh had Beth Shean and its villages, and Ebleam and its villages, and the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Endor and its villages, and the inhabitants of Tanakh and its villages, and the inhabitants of Megiddo and its, and its villages, and the third is Naphtha. Yet the people of Manasseh could not take the possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, If you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest, and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of, of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Bethshean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, if you've been following along in Joshua, I think you'll agree with me that this passage is really less than satisfactory compared to what we've read in the two previous chapters in the book of Joshua. Uh, we had our golden shining moment in Joshua 14. We were glad to rejoice with Caleb and the rest of Judah as they received a royal inheritance though we did groan a little inside when we heard about how Judah did not thoroughly drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. But it's here in Joshua 16 and 17 that we really start to see the cracks and the fissures forming. We start to see the, the ugliness of sin making its way back into the picture. The thing is, in, in, in the, in, in, even as we see sin creeping into this passage, we also see God showing that, his faith, that the faithfulness of his grace is greater. And that's the main idea I want to bring to your attention this morning. And the main idea of this passage and of this sermon is this. That the faithfulness of God's grace is stronger than our sin. The faithfulness of God's grace is stronger than our sin. Now, there are three surprising features about God's grace put on display for us in these two chapters, and they're going to be our three points this morning, what I want to point out to you. So first, we're going to see that God's grace is unconventional. We're going to look at a grace that is unconventional. Second, we're going to look at grace that is greater than our pedigree. Grace is greater than our pedigree. And third, we will look at how grace is greater than our faithless discontent. We're looking at grace that is greater than our faithless discontent. Well, first we want to look at an unconventional grace. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul calls the gospel of Jesus Christ the mystery which was hidden for ages and generations, but which has now been revealed to his saints. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to this as the hidden wisdom of God, which he decreed long before the ages for our glory. The gospel of grace is a mystery. It's called a mystery because it defies human wisdom. In the gospel, God chooses what, was, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He has chosen what we dismiss as weakness to shame the strong. He has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, with the purpose that, no human being might boast in the presence of God. God's grace is intentionally unconventional because it assigns glory to God alone. And we see that displayed here in Joshua 16 and 17. Now there are a couple features that stand out about the structure of these two chapters. First of all, it's worth noticing that uh, the, the parallel way that our author talks about the land which is given to these two tribes to the way that he also talked about the land that was given to the tribe of Judah. There's a noticeable difference between the way that the land of these three tribes is spoken of and the way that the land given to the other tribes is spoken of. And we'll touch a little bit more on that next week as we get into those allotments. But I just want to bring it to your attention here because it makes these three tribes stand out. The second feature, and the more important feature that I want to bring out to your attention, is the way that our author actually brings up the man Joseph here in verse 1. Verse 1 functions kind of as a heading that introduces us to the rest of what he's about to talk about. Um, it, it, it introduces for us the boundaries which were given to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, only he doesn't say, oh, this is the land that was given to Manasseh and Ephraim, at first. No, actually, he says, this is the allotment of the people of Joseph. Now, what you need to understand about that is you need to understand that Ephraim and Manasseh aren't actually Jacob's sons. They were actually Jacob's grandsons. For most of Joseph's adult life, Jacob thought that Joseph was dead. He had no idea that Joseph had been sold by his brothers into Egypt. He always just assumed that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. At the end of Jacob's life, after he and uh, Joseph are brought back together and reunited in Egypt, Jacob claimed Joseph's sons as his own, meaning that they were considered equals with the rest of Jacob's sons. He told Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are. So that's why there are 12 tribes and not 11 tribes in Israel. That's why we don't have a tribe of Israel that is called Joseph. In a way, Joseph received a double portion among his brothers. His namesake was multiplied when his sons were adopted into Jacob's blessing in this way. It's really a glorious moment in the, in the story that Genesis tell, tells. Uh, the rest of Joseph's children and everyone who was born in his house after that actually received their inheritance under the names of Ephraim and Manasseh. And it was a good inheritance. If we, uh, throughout, as we've been looking at the different tribes and what Jacob prophesied about what was going to happen in Genesis 49. Uh, this we see when we go to look at what he says to Joseph, we find this. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run all over the wall. 
The, the archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and the womb, blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brother. That is a good blessing. The only blessing that compares to that is the blessing really given to the tribe of Judah. And obviously, as we read what Jacob had to say about what was going to happen to his son, we can see how his separation from Joseph must have left a really deep impact on him. Not only that, I think he, he really identified with Joseph and his struggles. You see, Jacob had uh, lived his entire life as a man who wrestled with everyone around him. Actually, he came out of the womb, we are told, holding on to his brother's heel. God actually changed his name to Israel because of the way he had striven with God and man. Jacob did not earn God's blessing. Actually, when we look at Jacob's life, we see there is no way we could ever say that he deserved them at all. He was a sinner. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. He was someone, though, who had received God's blessing in his favor in spite of all of that. He inherited the blessings of his father Isaac and of his grandfather Abraham because God chose to extend grace to him. And it was only as Jacob grew older that God gave him eyes to really see and understand what that was. In his blessing of Joseph, Jacob praises God for the way that he cared for him and provided for him in spite of all the ways that Joseph had been attacked and mistreated. He calls God the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd and the stone of Israel, which is intended to bring to mind those visions that he had at Bethel, where God promised to be with him and to bless him as he had blessed his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. The fact that in that blessing, Jacob cites that title for God uh, it actually stands out. It's really something because as we consider here in Joshua 16 and 17 what was given to Joseph's descendants, we find that actually they received Bethel in their allotment of land. So it's, it's stringing this together and we're seeing how Jacob's blessing is becoming a reality here in Joshua 16 and 17. The blessing of Joseph's inheritance reminds us of the simple but profound reality that God in his grace takes the deepest, darkest, most hopeless situations and prevails against them to the praise of His glory and the glory of His name. It is no accident that the land of Ephraim and Manasseh is first and foremost called the allotment of the people of Joseph. Our author wants us to call to mind the rich history of God's grace in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now in Joseph to multiply the blessings of his people, turning every threat, every challenge, every impossible situation into blessings that put a spotlight on the power and the riches of his grace and his mercy. This is the moment when Ephraim and Manasseh received their portion with the rest of the tribes of Israel. And nothing, not the ill will of Joseph's brothers, not the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, 
not the bars of an Egyptian prison, the court of Pharaoh, or even a seven-year famine could prevail against the purposes and the plans of an almighty God. We're seeing the culmination of God's faithfulness in these chapters. God's grace is unconventional in the sense that God operates in a way that is far above what seems wise to us. In Isaiah 55, verse 9, God informs us that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God always achieves the priorities and the purposes of his plan so that he triumphs even over our sin and our disobedience the way he triumphed over Joseph's suffering. In Romans chapter 11, verses 32 through 36, Paul explains that God has consigned all to, all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all, to which he then responds, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So you see in there in Romans 11 as Paul is exalting God for his unconventional grace. By referring to the blessing of Joseph as he lays out the boundaries of this land, the author of Joshua is making a big point to us to exalt the supreme power and the depth of the wisdom of God, turning Joseph's curses everything that befell him into a blessing. Our author emphasizes that yet again in the way he lists the allotment of Ephraim before he lists what was given to Manasseh. You see, Manasseh was actually Joseph's firstborn. It would have made all the sense in the world to list him first here because he was the firstborn of Joseph's sons. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we see that our author actually lists Ephraim first. Now, that might not seem like a big deal to you. But I have to believe that not only was this intentional, but it's meant to make a point to us. And that really comes to light when you compare this to Genesis 48, which records the unconventional blessing which God gave to uh, Joseph's, to his two grandsons. Moses tells us that upon adopting Ephraim and Manasseh to be inheritors along with his sons, Jacob placed his hands on the heads of both of the boys to bless them. Now Joseph apparently was anticipating this. And so he strategically placed Manasseh, the firstborn, so that Jacob would place his right hand on his head and his left hand on Ephraim. It kind of modeled the fact that Manasseh was firstborn, Ephraim was second. Obviously, to Joseph, that seemed right. But Genesis 48 verse 14 tells us that as Jacob stretched out his hands, he actually crossed them so that his right hand was placed on the head of Ephraim and his left hand was placed on the head of Manasseh. And this actually upset Joseph since he thought, well, obviously the greater blessing should go to the oldest. But when he tried to correct his father, Jacob actually refused him, saying, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a great people. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he. The order of Jacob's blessing is actually reflected here in Joshua 16 and 17. 
it is shown here uh, how as these two tribes of Joseph are being uh, pronounced, Ephraim really did become that greater tribe. And he's listed first before his older brother, even though the author calls him the firstborn of Joseph. Joshua 16 and 17 are here subtly reminding us that you can't put God in a box. He shows mercy to whom he will show mercy and grace to whom he shows grace. He is God. And so we must remember that he has every right to do this. And he is good. So we can trust that as he does things that seem unconventional to us, that the purposes of his grace and his goodness are always being upheld. It's a good thing, actually, that God does not operate according to the fallen notions of human standards or to what we think is normal. The unconventional grace of God reminds us that that he is the potter and we are the clay. It reminds our hearts to regard God with wonder and gladness. After all, what is man that God should be mindful of us? Who am I? Who are you that God should delight in making known to you the mystery of the gospel of grace? Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Paul instructs us in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But because God chose to work through what the world dismisses as foolish and weak, because of Him, we are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that what is written might be upheld. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is the result of God's unconventional grace. And that is the grace that we see portrayed for us here in Joshua 16 and 17. It should lead us into worship, considering that we never are able to earn our salvation. That God chooses to work through what is weak and despised in the world to the glory of His name to bring us to Himself, to reconcile us, and to make us holy in Christ. Now the second surprising feature of God's grace which we see here in Joshua 16 and 17 is that God's grace is greater than our pedigree. God's grace is bigger than our pedigree. Uh, Living in Kentucky for so long, you learn to respect the lineage of racehorses. Because the, whatever a horse is descended from is going to determine how much it goes for our market and what the expectations are when it steps on that dirt track in the Kentucky Derby. If a horse is not from a good pedigree, it's considered an outsider. We see in these chapters that God does not care about such pedigrees. But then in accordance with his unconventional will and his unconventional grace, he works to exalt himself over what we expect. Um, here in Joshua chapter 17, verse 3, we're introduced to a certain situation regarding a man named Zilphahad and his daughters, Machalah, Noah, Haglah, Milcah, and Tirzah. Now, Zilphahad was one of the great, he was the great-great-grandson of Manasseh, one of the men who had come out of Egypt who had actually died in the wilderness. And he had five daughters, but no sons. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that was a big problem, since land was typically passed down through male descendants. Zilphahad's daughters realized, 
as they are coming to the threshold of the promised land, that their father's name was in jeopardy of being taken away, as if he had died, as, as if it had died with him in the wilderness. In Numbers chapter 27, we read how these five daughters came to Moses, Eleazar the priest, and the leaders of the nation, and asked for help. They said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin. And he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a portion among our father's brothers. Now Korah, if if you're familiar, you may know that Korah was a man who had actually led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, saying, who appointed you? and tried to get that his own authority for himself. He wanted glory for himself. And instead, as we read uh, what happened there, uh, we find that he and those who joined with him and their families were judged by God. They actually were swallowed up by the earth. They lost not only their lives, but also their portion in the promised land. There was no one to follow after them. There was no uh, allotment of land to their families because they all perished. Korah's name and those who joined with him in that rebellion were completely cut off from Israel's inheritance. Zilophehad's daughters did not want their father's name to be lost like that. So they make this appeal to the Lord. And we find in Numbers 27 that God ruled in their favor. He actually tells Moses, they are right. And so there was established a rule by God in Israel that if a man died without any sons, his inheritance would go to his daughters. And if he had no children at all, it would go to his father's brothers. And if he had no brothers, then it would go to the nearest kinsman of his clan. And the goal was to keep and maintain the name of that man. So here we are in Joshua 17. As the land is being distributed among the people of Manasseh, we find that Machalah, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah come to Joshua and Eleazar the priest, reminding Joshua of the word which God had commanded Moses, asking to receive what God had appointed for them to have. And in the second part of verse 4 and then on into verse 5, we read that, according to the mouth of the Lord, he, that's Joshua, gave them an inheritance among the brothers of their father. Thus... There fell to Manasseh ten portions besides the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, that's on the east side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with his sons. Now, there are three things that I want to point out to you about God's grace in this particular situation. First, we see that God rescued Zelophad's name from the shame of his sin. When these five courageous women came to Moses to ask for help, they were well aware of the fact that their father was a sinner and that he had died in the wilderness for his sin. His rebellion was not like the rebellion of Korah, but he was one, he was a man in a generation who had rebelled against God at Kadesh Barnea, and he had been excluded from entering the land of promise. So when Zilliphad's daughters come to Moses, They don't dispute in any way the fact that their father was a sinner. They come asking God to redeem their father's name so that it wasn't lost forever, excluded from the land of God's blessing. And we see that God heard that cry. He ruled in their favor, thus providing an inheritance for them. Now, 
if you ever go to our house, we have a little magnet that has a coat of arms with the name Lane on there. I'm really proud of my last name because it connects me to, uh, in a peculiar way, to my dad, his dad, and his dad, and the men who came before us, men who were very godly, men who are the kind of people who I think are really worth modeling your life after. I'm, I'm really thankful to have a son to carry on the name, uh, to carry that name on, and who I hope will, f- will have the same uh, desire and want to see that. When, when we found out we were having a boy, I yelled a little too loud because I'm the only like, male in my line. So that, that was it. It was like, my job is done. And now it's Titus's job. <laughs> a good name, we were told by Scripture, is better than gold, better than, fu- than fine gold. And I hope to pass down a good name to my son and he to his. You may or may not be proud of your name. You may have actually inherited some terrible trauma from your parents or a legacy that you're embarrassed about. You may know little to nothing about your family's heritage. Whatever your family history is, Joshua 17 teaches us that God's grace is bigger than your pedigree. In Christ, God has provided us with a better name, with a better family, with a better inheritance than anything you could ever receive from your earthly parents. That's the power of God's grace. It removes the shame of our sin and it replaces it with the enduring legacy of King Jesus. His name becomes our name. And that is a true treasure. The second thing we see about God's grace in this situation is that while God may not have provided Zelophehad with sons, he did give him some courageous daughters, didn't he? And then he honored those daughters. This was a step out of the cultural norm. But in this situation, God shows that he is not partial to men or to women. He made them both in his image, equally dignified, equally valuable. Your value before God is not on the basis of your gender. For as Paul explains in Galatians 3, 27 through 28, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is therefore neither, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there slave nor free, neither is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So Christian... The most significant thing about you isn't your gender. It's the fact that by grace, through faith, you have put on Christ. So don't buy what the world is trying to sell you right now. If you are in Christ, then your union with Him is the most significant thing about you. And that outshines every other feature about who you are. And the third thing we see about God's surprising grace in this situation is that we learn a lesson from Zelophad's daughters as they teach us what it looks like to respond to God's grace, to take his promises to him with humble anticipation. Now, I can only imagine what sort of courage it must have taken for these five ladies to go together before Joshua and the leaders of Israel, before a nation, and to ask that what God said he would give them be given to them. Now, as we look at the way these daughters come to Joshua and to Eleazar and to the the elders, we see that there's no presumption, no arrogance in the way that they come. No, there's just faith that acted in response to God's word. 
the attitude here is not unlike the way that we saw Caleb coming to Joshua in Joshua 14, asking that he might be granted what the Lord had set aside for him. God had told Mahlah and her sisters that he would provide an inheritance for them so that their father's name would not be removed from the clans of Manasseh. And we see that they didn't wait to be invited into that per se. But then when they saw when the opportunity was there, they took hold of that promise and they humbly came to Joshua and the leaders of the people at the time when their tribe was receiving this inheritance and they showed faith, asking that God's word might be upheld. Brothers and sisters, let us learn from their example and trust in and act on the promises that God has given to us. I think all too often fear and pride keep us from acting in accordance with God's word. As one commentator puts it, we can be like those people who come into a shop, who do their shopping and are ready to check out, but when they come to the counter and they see someone is there, they're too afraid to ring the bell even though it says, ring for service. If God has sent us His own Son to secure our salvation at the cost of His own blood, if God has poured out the gift of His Spirit on us, who searches our hearts and prays and intercedes for us, if God has set Christ on His throne, if He has appointed Him to serve as the great high priest for us, shall we not act in faith on His promises? Can we imagine that if God has done so much for us, that he will begrudge us when we pray to him or when we come to him to ask for forgiveness? No. God beckons us to come into his presence the way a father beckons his children to come into his. Let us learn, therefore, from the example of these five courageous ladies who received God's promise with faith and then acted upon them, coming when the time was right in humble submission, asking that it might be fulfilled. I hope you pray every day for the return of Christ. Christ will come whether you pray or not. There is a day appointed when Christ will come. But when we read in the book of Revelation, we find that ever present in the end times as they are described is the incense of the prayers of the saints which are offered up to God. And we hear them described in the most pleasant of ways. So brothers and sisters, pray earnestly. Come before the throne of grace. You have a great high priest who is interceding for you in ways that you don't even know. So come and pray. Now the third feature of God's surprising grace that we see in these two chapters is that his grace is greater than our faithless discontent. His grace is greater than our faithless discontent. Look with me there at verse 14 of chapter 17. Then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, Why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? What a thing to say. What a thing to say. Is this a gripe in the middle of receiving God's good gifts? There's no better way to ruin a birthday party or a Christmas morning than to hear someone complain about the gift that's been given to them or to say, Is that it? I don't know if you've ever done this. You ever search the bottom of a bag just to make sure you didn't miss something? You always want to do that in a certain way that nobody notices. But there's nothing that conveys a... Uh, it, it really sours the mood, doesn't it, when someone is expecting more. That's what we have going on here. It's a sour mood. Now, if we're looking at a map, you'll see how Ephraim and Manasseh actually border each other very closely. 
But you can hardly read these boundaries and come to the conclusion that these two tribes only received one portion. It's just a flat lie. If anything, we'd have to say that these tribes received three portions because they received land on both sides of the Jordan River. So no, this, this complaint is actually driven by two things. There is no unfairness on God's part. No, this is driven by two things, greed and faithlessness. Greed and faithlessness. Let's look for a moment at the reason these tribes say that they need more land. Now they make it look they make it out to look as if they hadn't been given enough land, stating that they were a numerous people since God had blessed them. Now, on the surface, that might sound very pious. Well, you need to give me more because God has given me more. But remember, Joseph, or sorry, Joshua was not the one who picked what land they got. This land was appointed for them by lot. Joshua was merely charged with distributing what God chose for each one of the tribes. So this complaint, although it's directed at Joshua, is actually directed against God. And we need to see it for what it is. This conversation sounds exactly like the one that Adam had uh, with God after he had disobeyed in the Garden of Eden. Well, well, yes, God, I ate the fruit but you, that you told me not to, but the woman whom you gave me, you gave her to me. Remember that, God. She gave it to me, and then I ate. It's your fault. That's what the sinful heart does. It looks at God and says, my sin is not my problem. It's yours. And that's what we see as a spirit of Ephraim and Manasseh as they say, well, look, God has blessed us, therefore we need more land. In their greed, the tribes of Joseph are actually blaming God for blessing them, saying that he had not portioned out enough for them. What a, There's not much you can say that's good about that. This greed is only further exposed when we consider that neither one of these tribes was at this point able to fill the land that had been designated to them. Back in Joshua 16, verse 10, we read that Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites that were in Gezer. And then in 17, chapter 17, verse 12, we read that Manasseh could not take possession of the cities that were theirs, but that the, the Canaanites continued to persist dwelling in the land. And we're wondering, why is that the case? And verse 13 explains that the reason they could not do this was because they were not yet strong enough, but that, that when they did grow strong enough, they merely put those peoples to forced labor. They did not listen to the commands of the Lord to destroy them. So, this complaint of not having enough land doesn't really hold any water at all, does it? Because the tribes of Joseph, though they were blessed by God, though they were numerous, we see that their eyes were really bigger than their stomachs. It's like going to a buffet, and then as you're loading up your first plate, you're agonizing over what you're going to have on your second. You haven't even had what's been given to you as it is. Why are you looking beyond that? Now, you've got to hand it to Joshua, because as weird as this situation is, he handles this complaint with some serious class and wisdom. In verse 5, he kind of turns the argument in on... Sorry, verse 15, he actually turns this argument in on itself. He says to these tribes, Well, if you are such a numerous people, go up to the forest. Clear the land before yourselves, the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Which is like saying, All right, fellas, if you're so big and you need so much space, go make some. Go see what you can do. What these tribes say in response to that is very telling. 
gives us a picture into their heart, they say, oh, well, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet, all the Canaanites who live in the plain, they have chariots of iron. Both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the Valley of Jezreel. So, here it is. And that, you need to see this. And there it is. That's the issue. The real reason the land is too small is because these people don't think they can go toe-to-toe with the Canaanites who are in the plain, who have chariots. And let's not be dismissive here. This is like saying, these towns have tanks. It's real. The chariots were the battle tank of the day. So, what, what we realize, though, is as in this complaint that their problem with greed, is, is their problem is not only with greed, but actually that they lack faith in God's adequacy to deliver his, on his promises. That's what's going on here. It's that they are not trusting God. When God gave this land to Ephraim and Manasseh, he was well aware of the chariots of the Canaanites. He knew this would challenge them. But he had already told them that he would give those people into their hands. In fact, in Deuteronomy 7, Moses tells the people not to be afraid of the people of the nations when they seem greater than they are. For God had promised to clear them away little by little to give them over to Israel so that no one could stand against them until they had destroyed them all. And then in Deuteronomy 20, he goes on to say, when you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, yeah, that's it right here. You shall not be afraid of them for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And in Moses' sermon there, he's saying, don't be afraid of the tanks. You have a nuke. God is with you. What are they to him? Ephraim and Manasseh may not have had chariots with which to match the forces of the Canaanites, but they had something that was so much more potent and so much more powerful. The Lord was on their side, and his promises are sure. So the problem we see that these tribes had with their allotment had nothing to do with the adequacy of the space. It had everything to do with their disbelief in the adequacy of God. So Joshua addresses this in verse 17 and 18. He says, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. For you shall drive out the Canaanites. So he's taking them back to the promises of God. Though they have chariots of iron, though they are strong. Now, it is difficult. Scholars go back and forth here because it's hard to tell the tone of Joshua's voice here, whether he's actually telling them to go up or whether he's just talking to them in such a way to expose the gross error of the way of their thinking. I think the best way to understand this is that Joshua isn't actually granting another portion to these tribes. Uh, because, And the reason is because we never see these boundaries ever mentioned for Ephraim again. And there's a noticeable absent of, absence of God's power mentioned here. I don't think Joshua is blessing this effort. Instead, I think what he's doing is he's playing up the strength of these tribes saying, Oh, you are a strong people. I'm sure you'll have no problem with something uh, since this problem with this because you're so big. There's no promise of blessing in this new covenant the way that Joshua blessed Caleb and the five daughters of Zelophad. So I think Joshua is really just holding up a mirror to these tribes and saying, Do you hear yourself? This is the gift of the Lord. Check yourself because you're about to wreck yourself. The problems 
that the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh have in this chapter are threefold. First, they were greedy for more than what God had seen fit to grant them. Second, they did not trust in the adequacy of God to give what he had given to them, set apart for them, over to them. They didn't trust in God's strength. And third, they did not follow through with what God commanded them to do. Since, when they were strong enough to carry out his commands to subdue the Canaanites who remained in the land, they chose to press them into service rather than to destroy them as they had been instructed to do, which was a choice that opened the door completely wide for future generations to abandon God and to fall into all sorts of worship of, of idols. So this account of how Ephraim and Manasseh received their inheritance really doesn't end on a high note. Rather, it leaves us, I think, reeling from an accurate understanding of the pervasiveness of our sin and the attraction of, our, of the desires of our flesh. We must never forget that while we have been crucified with Christ, while we are not our own, but belong in body and soul to Him, that we are still engaged on a daily basis in a struggle against the sin which clings so closely to us, so tightly to us. And this is where the message, I think, of these two chapters is important. Because this is where we see the power and the grace of God which is stronger than our greed, stronger than our discontentment. You see, Christ doesn't just secure a place in heaven for us. He also secures a new heart with new desires. He has sent His Spirit to dwell in His people, to convict us of sin, to perfect us, and then to breathe new life into us. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then He assures us that every other need we have will be added to us. We must take Him at His word, or else we will find ourselves like Ephraim and Manasseh starting to rely on our own strength, thinking that the inheritance which Christ has secured for us simply isn't enough. The grace of God brings peace to discontented hearts, and it does that by redirecting our eyes to the glory of Christ, in whom we are more than conquerors. This grace truly is greater than our sin, and we've seen that in three ways this morning. We are products of grace, and His grace is stronger than our greed, it is stronger than our unfaithfulness and the shame of our sin. Praise be to God for his unconventional and powerful grace. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us a glimpse, not only into the situation of what was going on with the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, but a glimpse into the twisted ways of our own heart, so that even though you give us life and breath and provide for our every need, even though you pour out riches upon us, riches uh, that the world has never enjoyed to this point, technology that is at our fingertips, relationships, opportunities to live in a free country where we have general freedom to, to pursue and seek happiness, although you continue to pour out your good gifts on us, we still find ourselves wanting more. And so, Father, I ask that you would be with us to help the things of this earth which would compete for our affection to grow strangely dim because we are so fascinated and in love with the glory, the divine glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. 
Father, I pray that we would not just know more about grace, but that we would experience that grace. And that as we do, we would rejoice in the grace that you give, which is greater than our sin. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.